I'm Sharon Betters, and I am the host of this Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. You know, each of us is going to experience hard places. Some of them are going to be much more painful than others. We could be traveling one way in life, and then something happens, and in a second, we know life is never going to be the same. We're headed in a direction we would never have chosen. Well, today I have the privilege of talking with Aaron Kaufman, who experienced one of those life-turning upside-down moments, literally. She was an independent young woman doing what she loved, enjoying life, when suddenly everything went dark. I've asked Erin to share her story today because even if you haven't experienced the same circumstances, her journey is going to encourage you. So Erin, welcome. Thank you. Erin, before we start talking about what happened that just dramatically changed your life, tell us a little bit about your life right now. Sure. I am 38 years old. I am an independent uh, woman living in Baltimore, Maryland. I've been in the area, I think, like 16 years. I stayed after college. I attended Towson University for music education and had a career as a music teacher. But now I am actually working in urban ministry, complete different change. And I currently work for a Christian community development nonprofit called Penn Lucy Action Network. 20 years ago, it was birthed out of the vision and mission of the church I intend now, which is Faith Christian Fellowship in Baltimore. I serve as the program manager of education services, which sounds very formal, but I pretty much just oversee and help to provide uh, programs for families and youth in the Penn Lucy neighborhood and to support the local schools in their effort of educating our children. So that's what I, I currently do now in Baltimore. Well, that sounds like a very challenging, but often very exciting um, day-to-day life, uh, yes. being involved in the lives of so many people and offering such great help. Um, that That's great. But back in uh, 2010, uh, you were on a different pathway and you experienced a traumatic, devastating accident. Why don't you tell us about that? Um, sure. It was... February 3rd, 2010, uh, we had just had an ice storm in the Northeast area, and I was currently working as a high school choir teacher, about 45 minutes north of Baltimore City, so I commuted out to work, and that day we had a delay for the weather, and it was forecasted another really large snowstorm. So I usually um, would leave work at a certain time after school, but we had an after school uh, Mm -hmm. recruitment fair for scheduling night. So eighth graders and and other high schoolers were coming to do their schedule for the following year. So of course I had a booth set up um, to recruit kids to sing in the choir. Um, So I actually stayed late at work that day, but uh, eventually got myself together. I would say five thirty, six o'clock, maybe a little later, um, to leave for work. And I was debating Tuesday. It was a Tuesday. Maybe it was a Wednesday. I can't remember. But it was the day I usually have my weekly Bible study with my core group of friends that I had been close to since college. So I was debating whether to go back to my house in Baltimore um, or go east of Baltimore, just straight to the Bible study. So I wouldn't, wouldn't miss it. So I was thinking that when I was climbing into, I was driving an SUV at the time and it was only a month old. Um, And what's really cool about that, it was like my first real adult-only purchase. Um, You know, parents weren't co-signing on the car. And I had a really small two-door coupe before that. I uh, 
you know, had upgraded for purposes of taking road trips with friends. I would haul equipment all the time for my choir um, concerts in the community. So I was just really excited about my new car. But um, so I was traveling home and it's there's one main road kind of heading out of the county where I worked back into Baltimore. And, and it was a two lane highway, but like one way each. So, but it was steady. It wasn't bumper to bumper. And I'm guessing people were going the speed limit, which was around like 50 or 55, but it was pretty steady. Um, There was a tractor trailer in front of me the whole time. So I couldn't really see ahead. Everything was going fine. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, I saw the tractor trailer swerve Mm -hmm. abruptly into the shoulder. And before I could even react, I saw headlights and then um, impact, which... Mm -hmm. Later, I found out was that a driver going northbound, I was going southbound, had fell asleep at the wheel and was going 60 miles per hour, had crossed the double yellow line. It had a rumble strip as well, um, but still crossed that yellow line. It hit me pretty much head on at 60 miles per hour. Yeah, it was uh, a strong impact. I, I still can't even really use words to describe it. I just have never felt anything like that in my life. There was a period of time where I didn't even know what was going on. I'm not sure if I blacked out or so forth. It had turned my car almost 180 degrees and I was facing northbound in my shoulder and it spun the car completely around and crashed in the whole front. So how long before you were aware something terrible had happened and and what was going on around you? Yeah, I am. I'm not too sure of the actual time of when I kind of came to. I had opened my eyes and realized something was something went wrong. But the first thing that I realized is I couldn't breathe. Um, I was having trouble even taking a breath in. And that was just absolutely horror of trying to figure out what to do. And I was trying to gasp for air and, and there were people running to the car. There was so much movement around the car, but I couldn't hear anything either. I don't know if I just went into shock. I couldn't hear anything. It was kind of like a silent movie. And I was trying to one, take a breath, but two, just figure out like what's going on in that. So, and I definitely had the moment that a lot of I mean, any of us don't want to have, which is, I just had that thought, like, I'm going to die. This, this, is, this is it. I can't breathe. Um, it felt like so long before I took that breath, but it could have been seconds, a minute. I don't know. But in my mind, it just was, was horrifying so that I just couldn't take a breath. And then finally, um, after what felt like minutes, I finally took a gasp of air and like mm. the feeling in my lungs when I took that breath was just indescribable. I just, I just couldn't believe it. So you're surrounded now by, I'm sure, EMTs and people that are trying to help you. Was it easy for them to get you out of the car? What, I mean, was the, the car uh, smashed? What, I mean, I'm envisioning this in my head and it, it sounds like a scene out of a movie. Yeah, so um, the car had been smashed completely in the front, mostly on the driver's side, because I guess... Just in a reaction of seeing that truck swerve, I must have went to turn my um, steering wheel. So most of the impact actually happened in the front of the driver's side seat and the side and was completely um, crushed in. I've I've been told these things, but it took about an hour um, to do the rescue out of the car. Also, it's funny, you go into this fight survival mode that you don't realize that you will go into. And even though I couldn't move, I wasn't communicating. 
inside my mind, I was having this internal dialogue, just like Mm -hmm. spiraling of trying to take like stock of what the situation was, what's going on. And I even remember after taking that breath, I thought if I could just take one more breath, just take one more breath, Aaron. Um, the other thing was keep your eyes open, like stay awake. If you're awake, you're alive. If you can see, you're alive. Um, even though I couldn't hear, I remember even thinking like my steering wheel's on my chest. Okay, so my steering wheel's on my chest. I can't feel my lower half. So one of the first realizations I had is I couldn't feel my lower half and I thought my legs had gotten cut off because I just couldn't feel them. Mm-hmm. And Eventually, I found out it was kind of similar to a phantom feeling because I had damaged them so bad um, that I wasn't getting feeling there. Um, So then I I went into panic mode. This is all happening in my head. Nothing's coming out of my mouth of that I'm paralyzed. Like my legs are cut off. I'm paralyzed. I can't move. Um, And then for some reason, I was just like willing something in my body to move. And my one my one little toe on my right foot like wiggled. And I just remember feeling that and thinking like, thank you, Lord. Like I can feel something like, like I'm still here. I can feel. Um, so yeah, it took about an hour. Um, and they tried to take me out of the driver's side first, but I, I was so trapped in that they would have had to cut me to get out that way. So, so they decided they were going to cut the whole top of the SUV off and take mm-hmm. me out through the top of the back. And, uh, yeah. So what happens when something like that happens? A lot of people think of the jaws of life, those kind of rescues. Mm-hmm. Um, is they usually assign someone just to be with you, which is a blessing. It's just a blessing to have someone there. But the horror of it too is, especially when there's so much going on around you that's traumatic, they'll put a sheet over you and that just created more panic. And I couldn't communicate. They were telling me the whole time that the only thing that I would maybe say every now and then in a whisper was help me. I couldn't say anything else and I was just gasping for air. So, but luckily this man just kind of got under the sheet with me when he realized I was panicking and was with me. And when they were about to go ahead and pull me out of the car, it's straightforward and it's crazy what he said to me, but it's what I needed to hear in the moment. But he pretty much said, um, you know, Aaron, like, we need to get you out of this car. And the only way we can get you out of this car is through the back. And it's going to hurt a lot. It's going to hurt really bad. But if we leave you in this car, you're going to die. So we have to do this. So just for him to put value in life in that way, you know, saying it sounds so crazy. But And then, yeah, on the count of three, he said one, two. I didn't even hear three because just the pain was out of this world. How old were you when all this was happening? Uh, I was 29. Very young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, clearly a lot of what you experience is a blur, but on the other hand, you're putting me right there in that accident scene. And I can only imagine the terror that you must have experienced. What about your family? I mean, I bet that you really wanted them to be with you, you know, meet you at the hospital, stay with you through all of it. Uh, were they able to, to get to you? Yeah, that was a little more difficult. My closest family member in proximity is my sister. She lives in Southern Maryland. So that's still a good two hours away from Baltimore. My parents live in Florida. And I have, well, at the time, I did have a good amount of aunts and uncles in Delaware where I grew up. So they were far away. For them to get to me was going to be a little bit of time, even my sister. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I, I have this core group of friends that live in the Baltimore area. We've been close, brothers and sisters in Christ's College. And, um, because I was supposed to be going to them, 
they were kind of the first to respond, um, mm. which, you know, they're, they're kind of like family. I call them family. <laughs> mm. um, so when this kind of happened, they divided and conquered and they all met at the house for Bible study. And then a small group went to the hospital um, and the others stayed to pray throughout pretty much majority of the night. And I was completely in and out since they pulled me out of the car. The only thing I kind of remember is the pain, even down to regulating the pain when I, I was flown to shock trauma, um, mm-hmm. medevac. And I just remember just kind of like either screaming or panting or making some kind of like rhythmic sound mm-hmm. just as a coping mechanism. Um, so yes, yeah, so when I got there, the rest was a blur. I'm pretty sure they probably gave me some form of morphine, which is great, but it made me completely in and out. So mm-hmm. yeah, the first memory I have of any kind of family or friend was actually my best friend, Larissa. I came to for some reason in the ER and she was actually on my bed weeping. I wasn't sure what was going on or why she was crying at that point. Um, Cause I was so foggy and I saw my sister in the corner uh, with the cop. And then another time in the night I woke up, I saw my sister laying face down in the bed, sleeping like next to me, sitting in a chair next to me in my bed. And my parents flew in from Florida. They took uh, the first flight they could get early in the morning and they waited to rush me to surgery until I could see them. So I Mm. saw them for minutes and then left. Um, So yeah, it was, yeah, even the people in Baltimore, it was hard you know, when something like that happens, it's hard to organize and figure out what to do. Like, what do you do? But it sounds as though uh, your community was a critical piece for you, especially in those first hours. And I'm sure later, but having relationships is so important. Having having valuable, uh, trustworthy relationships, even beyond our family, is is so important in in everyday life, that's where those relationships are built. And then when crisis happens, I, I like to say that God keeps his promises through his people. Mm. When he says, I'm never going to leave you, he sends his people to remind us that he's right there. They become his hands and his feet and his tears and mm. his hugs. And uh, what you're describing is a beautiful picture of that kind of community. Mm-hmm. So you're, they rush you into surgery. What, what were your injuries? Yeah, so... Um, in a nutshell, I pretty much had crushed everything in my lower half and my waist down. So that surgery they rushed me into was for my left femur, which I broke. It separated and it shattered. So it was in bad condition. That was that phantom feeling I was feeling, especially my left leg. I felt like nothing was there. It was just kind of like mm-hmm. jello when I was in the car. And that was, that was from the left femur. I broke my lower back. Blew out all the ligaments in my right knee and my right foot got crushed, especially on my toes um, underneath the brake pedal um, or at the brake pedal. And these are all, I would say, pretty common to a front impact crash. I kind of felt like I got them all. You know, you're, you're a young woman enjoying life. You have your first, like you said, your, your beautiful new car, a job that you enjoy, friendships. You're giving to others through ministry and then this happens. Uh, What was your initial response emotionally to this devastating accident? Again, for a long time, I still had no clue what was going on or or what had happened to me. But kind of when I started to come to and connect with reality again, it was just utter disbelief. 
you know, it just didn't seem real. You just go straight into disbelief to the point of, I think in the beginning, I even felt like I was living someone else's life. Like I was in a dream and I was living someone else's life. I didn't feel like Aaron. And many times I felt like I was observing someone's life from the inside. Like Mm -hmm. I was in a dream sequence, but I did, when I did realize what was going on, that's when the questions start flooding in. How did this happen? Why would this happen? And then kind of panicking inside. I can't walk. I'm motionless and helpless. What do I do now? And I think for me, the pain of realizing what was going on was just as intense as the physical pain. And what was even more devastating is I was completely alone when I found that out. My accident happened two days before the blizzards of 2010, Mm. which we had two of them. So when the first blizzard hit, I was alone in shock trauma for Mm. a week. My family saw me briefly when we transferred hospitals and then I didn't see him again for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, I think it was just so hard, you know, cause there was no family or friends or anybody I had a real like close relationship with just to ass- give me assurance, just to like give me that touch or even just clarify something for me. And yeah, I just felt like I was living, like I woke up in a bad dream instead of the other way around. And it was probably the most alone I still claim today is the most alone I ever felt in my life. I, I can imagine, I mean, like when we do counseling, we like to have, like when I, if I'm counseling a woman, I always like to have a friend with her that can hear the counseling so that they can remind her that this is, this is what was really said. This yeah. is the truth of what was said. So you're hearing this devastating news and you're by yourself and hearing it through the grid of pain and fear and the unknown and all of that, that had to be incredibly lonely and incredibly painful. Yeah. And just feeling when you're so sick and weak, you can't think straight. You know, I just wasn't even comprehending even the weather. Like I just kept saying things like, where's my family? Like, why aren't they here? I don't understand. And, um, you know, and I was really sick. I forgot to mention, I just had, I had a lot of internal bleeding. I had a lot of breathing issues from bruised lungs. So I was just not just like physically had these injuries, but I was just really like ill as well. Mm -hmm. High fevers, all those things. So obviously you got past that, but then I'm sure that you had lots of rehab to be able to learn how to walk, or if you were able to learn how to walk, how to get your body working again. What was that like for you? Yeah, intense. I always think of one word and that's intense. Mm. Like you receive a new normal very fast and you Mm. have to assimilate to it really fast. I think one of the blessings of rehab is it has strong routines. So it gives you at least something to focus on in that way. But but yeah, it was about six weeks I stayed in a rehab hospital and I got PT, uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy multiple times a day. The first week or so I was bedridden, but most of that therapy happened in bed. But then eventually they taught me how to sit up and transfer to a wheelchair because with especially my lower half injuries, uh, walking wasn't going to be in the picture anytime soon. I was still really weak and sick the first half of the, of the stay there. It was just kind of working on healing as well, not just that area of sickness, but strengthening my body to get, you know, they mostly trained me in the hospital to get ready to be in a wheelchair for a little mm-hmm. while. But I was completely dependent on round-the-clock nurses and staff, and my family would come in too to help to do things like dress me, bathe me, even use the bathroom. I had to have at least two people to help me use the bathroom which was horrible in that way. I mean, any, I mean, I used the bathroom in a commode chair next to my bed. And before that, I went mm-hmm. to the bathroom in my bed. I mean, it was just 
demoralizing. And then I had to like be ready to work. And it was just difficult in that way. And I remember there was one moment where I just like hit rock bottom with feeling hopeless was I was getting bathed in my bed, which was the norm. Once a week I got a shower and that mm-hmm. took, again, I never showered alone. It took multiple people to do that. The nurse rolled me over and I had to hold on to the railing in order mm-hmm. to keep myself on my side. She's bathing me. And I just remember thinking like, this isn't what God intended for mm-hmm. my life to be. And then I'm useless and I'm a burden and all these people are needed just to have me do my normal functions of the day. So that was a, definitely a, a low in, in the hospital time. But after that, I had about six months of home health care. I couldn't move back into my home. I lived in a Baltimore City Row home. It was my first home I purchased again on my own. And But, you know, my wheelchair wouldn't fit to the doors. There's multiple mm-hmm. steps, no bathroom that I could get to. So I actually moved in with my sister temporarily, my parents and I, down in mm-hmm. Southern Maryland. And she converted her dining room into a hospital room. So we got a hospital mm-hmm. bed, all my adaptive equipment. And my family took care of me through that home health care. Eventually, in those six months... Mm. After treatments and surgeries is the process of learning how to walk again and function again and, mm. and do all of those things. But really, it was almost two years of mm. full-time focus of recovery and surgeries and treatments and so forth. When you are uh, a woman of faith and your life, uh, you, you were heading to a Bible study that night. You're sharing about how you struggled with being so dependent and what what was life going to be like? Were you ever going to be independent again? All of your dreams that you would accomplish, so many great goals, a new home, a new car, a great job, great friends. There's so much that seemed to be slipping through your fingers. How did you handle this spiritually? Was there a turning point where like an aha moment or was it progressive? Was it a little bit at a time where, you know, where you thought, okay, this is, this is really bad, but I know the Lord hasn't uh, abandoned me. Yeah. I think an ongoing struggle when you go through something like that is just to even feel God's presence, trust that he's sovereign. You know, these are things that were things I believed in, but it felt so absent in the moment, especially when you struggle with things like dignity and purpose and value, trying to see where that is in this whole situation. And I think a turning point for me, the first one I would say was dealing with realizing that I couldn't do this alone. Like I didn't have the fighter strength, which was really difficult for me. I'm a pretty independent woman and I come from a feisty Italian family where fight and perseverance is the core to my family, which I love and respect with them. So I just couldn't figure out why none of that was working. Like even when I would try to like fight and be committed to my therapies and committed to the next goal and and so forth I felt that that was fleeting and I just found myself in a pit of despair like every time I moved forward with one victory there were like two other obstacles waiting on the doorstep I just couldn't figure out how to get get myself ahead and I think the realization was that my survival mode wasn't going to come from within me and even if I was really struggling to feel the presence of God and even see how he can be sovereign in all this, that really he is the only one that has the strength and power to overcome 
these things or to push forward. So it was a logistical realization at first, like I need to accomplish this goal. I need fight. But really God was just changing my heart in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was just to get me to the next step in my recovery, which it was, but he was really changing my heart and making his presence known in my weakness, which was really great. And, you know, and, uh, you know, in the moment I wasn't thinking, oh, God's changing my heart, you know, and like turning to him. What I realized was the way I was approaching this wasn't working and that I didn't have a better alternative, but then to turn to God. Even in the moment, if my heart was being changed, you know, God was still powerful and moving. And, and I just realized my bad attitude or giving up or despair or even grumbling and complaining wasn't going to foster anything but more of that. I just had to find a better way. So what was really interesting is, is you know, that phrase, the only way is up. Well, it's really true. And when you're stripped of everything and you hit rock bottom, I mean, that's really when you see the presence of Christ and your face starts to kind of come out of the woodworks just slowly like a ray of sunshine. So, um, so yeah, that was a real turning point for me. Even if I had to squint to see the presence of God, if I had to fight to believe, if I had to surrender kicking and screaming to him, that was a big turning point for me Mm -hmm. spiritually. I was just talking to a friend who is in a really painful place and she said that she's going back over her life and she's um, marking those, um, hard places. And she said, because she just wants to see, get a feel for her, the whole of her life. But she said, but what she's going to do now is go back and write out how she recognizes now, looking back, how the Lord was transforming her, how he was using those broken places to show him things about himself, to transform her heart, just as you just said. And I thought, what a good discipline to do that because, you know, the Bible tells us, God says, remember, you know, remember my faithfulness, pass on, tell, tell about my past faithfulness. And so sometimes I think it's really good to go back and say, this is who I was, but after that happened, this is who I became. And it's because of Christ in me, not because of me, just as you just said, that we can't pull ourselves up our own bootstraps most of the time. But it's a good teaching moment to show yeah. us. Just recently in, in my community group or house church, we were talking about that remembering and, and taking time to see the full story of, of God's grace. And I think that's so important in our lives um, because, you know, I think we forget that the Holy Spirit is in us and working and... Mm. And for me, I feel like it's a magnet that's constantly drawing me in any of my circumstances closer to him. And ultimately, isn't that what we want? And in the circumstance, it's hard to see that, but it's good to go back mm. and recount that and see mm-hmm. that drawing us closer to him. It also helps when you're facing another crisis to go yeah. back and say, all right, he met me there. He's going to meet me here. He promises. So, so Aaron, what, what are some of the things that helped turn your heart toward the Lord through this time? That kind of moment and realization about God's sovereignty and power was the first one that I just talked about. But really, honestly, God uses his people and he uses even his creation, you know, he uses it all. I mean, 
to help turn our hearts towards him. So yeah, I received a lot of mail through my recovery. It was, it was really beautiful um, from all kinds of people, you know, not just people presently in my life, but people who were in past seasons, word spread like with, mm-hmm. with the internet and social media. And, and it was just a blessing to get that. But I remember, you know, I got so many cards, so many Bible verses, other things, but for some reason on a certain day, a certain Bible verse in a card, randomly helped me and it was actually when I was taking all the cards down for discharging out of the hospital that I read it in my wheelchair and it was second corinthians 4 17 through 18 for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal mm-hmm. and I think that was so fitting after having that realization of, of God's power and sovereignty. And even though I found comfort and assurance in that truth, it's still hard to see the full picture, see the light at the end of the tunnel, even if we believe God's sovereign and to find that comfort. And I just realized that everything I'm built on is that the promise, I, the promise of eternal life I have in, in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And, and that this situation was, wasn't going to last forever. I mean, it felt like forever, but it wasn't going to last forever. And if I believe God's faithful, it's not going to last forever. And that everything was just fleeting in the light of eternity, days, months, years, it's all fleeting. And mm-hmm. it made me think of like, what we think is long time is a blink in the eye of God, you know, and that this was going to be gone. So I remember sitting in my wheelchair and just feeling this like peace overcome me that like this wasn't going to last forever. And what do I believe is eternal and keeping my mind set on that for encouragement. So, so yeah, so that was a real help. And I think just set me on the track of, of these affirmations of praise that helped me get through things. Like if I was really struggling, I remember with any type of things in my rehab in the moment in an exercise I remember I would just say in my mind all the time God is who he says he is he is faithful God is who he says he is he is faithful over and over just to remind me of those things and I think what's interesting is that turning point was showing me that I even from the beginning had thanked God for so much even in the journey of those small blessings and victories even down to in the rescue of, I took that first breath. What was my first thought in my head? Thank you, Lord. Thanking him for things that, you know, uh, standing for the first time, like we just don't even think about it. And with those type of moments, we just thank the Lord. We just Mm. praise him in the moment. And I realized that this thanking the Lord and praising him, even if I didn't plan it, definitely was bringing me a sense of peace and presence of God compared to having a bad attitude about it or just wallowing about it. When our son Mark was in a fatal car accident, along with his friend Kelly, I, I a lot of the things that you're saying I resonate with, like the cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, people in the face of such a devastating event feel as though no matter what they do, it's not going to help. You know, they mm-hmm. can't change it. They can't make it better. And yet when they obey the Lord's nudge to send that card, maybe write a personal note, they, they, they have to send it knowing, trusting if the Lord wants to use this, then good. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've tried to send a word of encouragement and I would call those uh, special notes treasures in the darkness where mm-hmm. he promises that he's going to send us those treasures to help turn our hearts toward him. Mm-hmm. And there are, I can think of, a, a, a there's a multitude, but there are a few cards I remember getting that they stuck with me and they stick with me today. Mm-hmm. And those people 
probably thought that was the most useless thing I could have done. And yet it was planned by the Lord to help turn my heart toward him and to take my next breath and to take my next step. And so it's so important for us to take that opportunity to reach out and and to encourage someone, even though we feel helpless. I always tell people like, if you even have a simple thought about doing something like that, then do it. That, that's from the Lord, you know? And I think it's easy to think in moments like these, in moments like we both had, that God has abandoned us. It's interesting how he just uses his people and orchestrates the body of Christ in a certain way, in small ways to remind us that we're not alone, that we're, we're walking life with other people, but we're walking life with him. He has not abandoned us. And, and especially with that card reminded me that not only was I not alone in that way, but that God was there through that card. And we need to be reminded of his truth over and over and over again, because our hearts are telling us a lie. Yes. a lot of times. And so the truth is shining a light on that darkness. And and the, the one I think a, a lot about is a Christmas card that a friend sent with a personal note, but on the front of it, it said the light entered the darkness and the mm-hmm. darkness could not overcome it. Mm-hmm. And that just, that carried me through Christmas and through all those really painful places of his light is not going to let this darkness overcome me. And so anybody that's listening, you're part of God's amazing tapestry of life. And you could be the one who is sending that encouragement that's going to be multiplied through that person's life in in ways that help others. So yeah, that reminder of truth is so important. It could be simple, you know, just one little thing like um, a friend shared with another friend who's going through a hard time, the a bruised reed, he will not break, you know, Mm. you will not quench that light. And that's like, it just needs to be simple. Like it doesn't even have to be complicated. Just think of one thing and that could just change someone's heart. Well, you've been through a lot. It's about 10 years. mm, Yeah. About 10 years later, uh, life is still challenging for you. And I I appreciate that uh, in our conversations, you don't offer a one and done do this and, depression will fly away and you won't be discouraged and all of those things. What are your, some of your thoughts on that? Like some of your ongoing challenges, what are they and how do you process them in your daily life? Life is still very challenging for me. As you said, it's been a long time. Actually, the last weekend was the nine-year anniversary of mm. the accident, which seems crazy. But yeah, I carry the effects of the, the crash with me for the rest of my life, mm. and I will. So I've lost mobility. Um, I can walk, um, but one of my legs is shorter than the other, and just from the extent of injuries, you know, sometimes I need to walk with a cane, those kind of things. But I've lost mobility. I've also lost some nerve function in my, in my lower half. I have chronic pain. Arthritis is setting in pretty hardcore from the waist down. And the other thing that's really hard to deal with is I've been diagnosed with PTSD, mm-hmm. um, especially with triggers from the rescue. So there's so many times that I kind of wish I was knocked out for that rescue mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because the, the things I have to carry now are, are pretty mm-hmm. hard. Um, I don't sleep regularly. Um, I need help mm-hmm. with sleep and other things. And as PTSD, you know, a lot of people know um, with post-traumatic stress disorder, it can show up anytime, any place. There's no, there's no kind of schedule of how that goes. So my doctors also told me I'm aging about 20 years um, faster from the waist down than I am. So mm-hmm. from the top, I'm 38. From the bottom, I'm 58. Some more surgeries in my future as well. Um, so, and, and the other devastating news is 
I was told to reconsider full-time teaching just because of the physical and the schedule is hard to keep up. So my health is kind of a part-time job. No. Being in my 30s, um, having to do, um, God's been faithful to provide me with work, but um, that that can go with that. But yeah, so um, so all of that is, is very difficult and there's ups and downs in that. There's good days and there's bad days, but it never goes away. And I had to come to the realization that this is a life lifelong thing. So yeah, so I just kind of found the way for me to fight hopelessness is, um, well, it's easier said than done. <laughs> I'm not successful all the time. And that's why I'm thank you, thankful for the grace of God. But I think we can get caught up in a culture where we feel, or at least this is how I felt, is I felt like I've been told or taught that I should thank God for the hard things in life. But like, especially in the first two years, I was not there and that made me really angry. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't feel authentic to me. Um, I didn't feel honest, you know, thanking the Lord for things like my injuries or even like think of other people. Thank you for this hard relationship or broken relationship. Thank you for like cancer or other horrible um, Mm. illnesses we can go through. I mean, it just didn't feel right. But I learned that I could find a way that I could be truthful and face that. Um, And really what it is, it's not thanking God for my circumstances, but it's needing to praise him for who he was because that didn't change even though my circumstances change. That was kind of the, the system that works for me. Like I said, I'm a successful more days than others, but trying to stay on that track of realizing that um, praising him for who he is is really good way to walk through some of those dark places. I think that is such good counsel because I, you know, I've uh, thought about like in our own circumstances that I would never be able to say, Thank you, Lord, for the accident that took our son's life. I, and I, I think, am I sinful? Am I not trusting him? But I can thank him that he is perfect love, that he loves me perfectly, that he is with me always, that he is faithful, that he has something better planned for us. We live in a broken world and all of us are going to experience brokenness some way. You know, I don't belong here, but thank you, Jesus, that you uh, have bought me my salvation, that there is a better day coming, that uh, I can look forward to eternal life. And I'm, I'm on a pilgrimage. And thank you that I'm not alone in this pilgrimage and those sorts of things. And I, I was uh, talking with a friend whose husband died about a year ago, and she was, you know, thanking the Lord for all those things. And she said, but the problem is, I just miss my husband. I just miss him. And I'm always going to miss him. But for a Christian, we, we don't have to look at that and say, well, that's terrible. You know, you should come to a point where God is meeting all of those needs and everything. Yes, that's true. But there are some things, there are some wounds that only heaven can heal. You know, okay. that there, and, and God, God promises us that, us that, you know, he said someday there will be no more tears. In the meantime, as we're walking this pathway of tears, we can find that joy and that peace in trusting him that he's got us, that he's, and, and like you said, grace, when we have those bad days and we just can't seem to break that ache, the ache won't go away, that he, his grace is sufficient. His grace is there and uh, he doesn't see us through that grid of our unfaithfulness or our shortcomings. He sees us through Jesus. And so Aaron, I, I so appreciate the way you have stepped back into your pain um, to offer help and hope to others who are experiencing this kind of trauma and 
maybe a dependency on others that they never expected, or maybe they've been in that wheelchair all of their lives and you have offered some really practical help and hope. As we wrap up, I would just love for you to just talk one-on-one. Just imagine that you're sitting across the table from someone who is facing what seems like an impossible situation. You can, you can just, you recognize the hopelessness that you see in their face and in their eyes. What encouragement can you offer to her in this moment or to him? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is I see you and I hear you and I see your pain. Um, and I know, like, I know. And um, there are a lot of other people that know as well. I know how it feels to feel like you're drowning in your impossible situation, feeling like you just need breath. I remember a time when my medical bills were stacked up and the threat of losing my home and so many other things outside of the physical was overwhelming me. And I remember I just cried out to God, like, Lord, no more. Like, just give me a break for one day. And, you know, if you just allow me to breathe for one day, I promise I'll do better tomorrow. Like, I just need a break. I know how that feels. And I I lament with you, my friend. But, you know, life is not easier going numb and living in that rock bottom and despair. And that's what Satan wants. He wants to come and kill and destroy our hope that we find in Jesus. John 10, 10 says that. And it seems easier in there, but like friend, trust me, it is not easier there. You're not going to find the solution there. It's that faith in Jesus. Because when it comes down to it, we claim Jesus to be our Lord and we ask him into our lives and we've accepted a relationship with him and it's salvation that nothing can change our identity in him, our value and our purpose. That's hidden in Christ. That is untouchable. And that it doesn't matter the darkest and most painful circumstances that will never change that we are a part of that story, his ultimate redemption story, and that God sees us even if life is completely turned upside down and he's with us because also too is he loves us and he values us no matter what. And that's because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. And that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. So that's where our value is. And nothing can take that away. I mean, nothing, nothing that has happened or will happen or was taken away and or given to you will ever change that and um and i think that should just drive you to to praise and thanksgiving for that because that is the one truth in our life that will will never change ever on this earth and in heaven which should hopefully encourage you so you know i just kind of leave with the verse this is my go-to verse and i have a feeling for the rest of my life will be and God calls us to follow him in radical ways that aren't natural to earth. And this verse reminds me of that. It's Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And it's now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. And that verse is powerful because he says now, Paul, in the pit of his suffering from prison to other people who are suffering said now, not later, not when you get through your trial, not when life is all great. Now we're supposed to turn to him, unto him. We're supposed to turn to him even when it's really hard. And because he's far more than anything we can imagine or think, like whatever we think God's power and strength and love is, it's 10 million times stronger and able and it's in us. The power is in us. So I just encourage you to rest in those truths. If you believe Jesus is Lord, then those truths are 
hopefully what will continue to carry you through whatever you're going through in your life. So Aaron, thank you so much. And we're so grateful for those who are listening today. I'm Sharon Betters and my guest today on our Help and Hope podcast is Aaron Kaufman. This resource has been produced by Mark Inc. Ministries and it's free and you can go to markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you will hear uh, lots of stories like Aaron's that offer help and hope in some of the darkest places of life. People who are further along in life's journey, uh, who, who talk about their struggles with a drug addiction or a terminal illness or depression or adultery or raising children with special needs or being a caregiver and, and just so much more. With each story, you are going to find a friend a little further along in life's journey who wants to encourage you with their own redemption story. No matter what your circumstances, you don't even have to be experiencing these crises. I know that the conversations you listen to will inspire you in your own uh, life pathway. We would also love to hear from you uh, how these resources are helping you, how Aaron's story is encouraging you. And you can contact us through markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org. You can also subscribe to our other resources uh, when you go to markinc.org. So again, I thank you for listening. If you want to know more about what it means to know Jesus, please go to markinc.org and contact us. And it would be a privilege for us to share with you the help and hope that only Jesus gives.